Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. In the background was the growing struggle between two great powers to shape the post-war world. Soviet Russia was expansively stabbing westward, knifing into nations left empty by war. On orders from the Kremlin, Russia had launched one of history's most drastic political, moral, and economic wars, a Cold War. The United States was obliged to help Europe safeguard its traditional freedoms and the independence of its nation. For this American citizen, memories of that Cold War mentality are increasingly elusive with every day that passes, and not merely because of the three decades since its end and today. Or, so I tell myself anyway. But this coalition was to be torn asunder. Already an iron curtain had dropped around Poland. Hungary, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria. From the perspective of the U.S., the effects of the Cold War on culture are easily seen in contrast to the world of the 21st century. Like, today we have internationalism. Ah, but this is Europe, you say. But let's see what can happen elsewhere in, say, the small town of Mawsonie, Wisconsin. Peaceful, isn't it? But the red truncheon falls and the chief of police is hustled off to jail. Next, public utilities are seized by fifth colonists. Watch carefully what happens to an editor who operates under a free press. He goes to jail, too, and his newspaper is confiscated. Exit freedom of thought. Yes, this is life under the Soviet form of government. In summary, the period from the early 1950s to the end of the 80s was a time when the world's greatest powers, the United States, the 15 amalgamated republics of the Soviet Union, and, for not entirely dissimilar reasons, the People's Republic of China, stayed nearly entirely ignorant about essentially everything happening in the others. Here in the States, one result was the laughably simplistic and seriously ludicrous stuff out of Hollywood Burbank, which was essentially, let's not mince words here, propaganda. Fortunately, we can move the clock back. The time is not yet. Let us pray that it never happens in our country. Before we meet the members of the American Legion Post 279 who help make this picture possible. I'd just like to say that it gives me a great deal of satisfaction to represent two outstanding shopping centers in California, the shopping hub of the San Gabriel Valley in West Arcadia, and the Whittier Quad Shopping Center in Whittier, California, because they are concrete expressions of the practical idealism that built America. When you visit these two fine shopping centers, you'll find more than four score beautiful stores 
with sparkling assortments, an attractive atmosphere, and of course, plenty of free parking for all the cars that we capitalists seem to acquire. Now, Just sure, that particular bit of film is from 1950, and pretty freaking hilarious today. But if you think that kind of nonsense got any more sophisticated, recall this treasure trove of Cold War tropes from 1985. Just four years before the Berlin Wall fell. Я думаю, что каждый тоже изменился. Вы можете измениться. Каждый может измениться. In the real world, seemingly in defiance of overarching geopolitical thought, sport was a general exception to the cultural blackout of the Cold War. Like many before them, and increasingly commonly in the 20th century, the leaders of the Soviet Union figured that much diplomatic level prestige could be gained through domination in international sport, not to mention the potential value in, and let's not mince words here either, sports for propaganda purposes back home. Due to the unwritten rules of the Cold War, countries like the USSR, Yugoslavia, and the rest weren't about to let their top athletes play in, say, the NBA, NHL, and Premiership Soccer. But the Soviet Union in particular was quite keen to send its best to international sports competitions. In the 1970s, the Red Army hockey team would come to North America repeatedly and smoke Canadian and U.S. national teams, NHL teams, NHL all-star teams. At the World Cup and European qualifiers, the Soviet Union and so-called Iron Curtain countries like Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary faced off against the great South American side, just as did the capitalist countries of Western Europe. But for most folks in the Americas and the so-called First World, the Summer and Winter Olympic Games were the ultimate displays of expression of Soviet might and willpower in physical form. Here, the sports writers and commentators necessarily, unfortunately, usually tended to stamp a paranoid and combative Cold War viewpoint on things. There were complaints of the unfairness of amateurs versus professionals. So our best athletes compete for money. That means we go into many Olympic events with athletes of only secondary skill. Take boxing. Russia sends its best boxers to the Olympics. The boxers may have been subsidized for a long while, but they are not professionals as we know professionals. Meanwhile, our best boxers 
Floyd Patterson's, Joe Brown's, and so on, are recognized pros and ineligible. We should have Floyd Patterson boxing in the Olympics. In basketball, where the Russians are making much progress, we should be able to use such grades as Elgin Baylor, Bob Cousy, and Will Chamberlain. Sure, you'll hear an uproar from the amateurs. You'll hear an uproar from other countries who claim they do not have professionals. But it's time to be realistic. The athletes against whom we are forced to compete may not be professionals, but only because there is little professional opportunity for them. But they are not amateurs either. Yet, we try to beat them with amateurs. Hereafter, we must shoot our best shot. Chicago White Sox owner Bill Veek, as quoted by David Condon for the Chicago Tribune, April 23, 1961. There were betrayals of USSR athletes more or less as robots. The ladies and gentlemen from Russia who went to Munich, quote, solely for pleasure, unquote, are hard professional athletes harnessed by the state, leashed to the state, rewarded and punished by the state, and to pretend that it is otherwise is less to indulge the imposters than to dishonor ourselves for conniving at imposture. William F. Buckley, in his On the Right column of September 15, 1972. There were outrageous editorials playing at humor, but filled with apparently socially acceptable xenophobia and sexism. The social chairman for the East German delegation. Surely there must be one, a man in charge of arranging dates for the girls of the GDR, who won an astounding 9 of 14 track gold medals and 11 of 13 swimming events. Most of them, however, look alike, big, muscular, and hot-faced. The man's responsibility is immense. American swimmer Shirley Babishoff gets Tin Lizzie's Meow Award for sniffing of the East German conquerors, quote, at least I don't have to walk around my neighborhood looking like a man, unquote. However, the consensus of the press corps was that if they changed the women's swimming events to beauty pageants, East Germany's Cornelia Ender still would have won. Vic Talley, Chicago Tribune, August 4th, 1976. And, of course, there was the regular barrage of complaints about doping, even occasionally going so far as to invent altogether fictional new drugs. A New York Times inquiry into the drug situation at the Olympic Games at Munich has disclosed that athletes from the Soviet Union, East Germany, and several other Eastern European nations may have had access to large quantities of a new drug that could be taken as late as 15 minutes before a competition to stimulate performance. Test by Dr. David James, a 37-year-old chemist in Switzerland and a former worldwide sprinter from the United States, revealed that the drug's two major components were caffeine and nicotiamide, neither of which were on the list of banned drugs issued by the Medical Commission of the International Olympic Committee. New York Times News Service, November 11, 1972. And so, but here's the thing. When international sports came on the TV, the performances of the athletes of communist countries spoke for themselves. Despite all the hatred and animosity that good Americans were supposed to show toward the Soviet Union, its client states, and athletes, nearly every Olympic Games produced notable figures from the Soviet Union and client states that we'd never heard of before and were unlikely to necessarily ever see again. Like Nina Ponomareva of the USSR, who won her country's first ever Olympic gold by effortlessly beating the record in the discus throw by 12 and a half feet. 
or Nadia Comaneci of Romania, who remains the only gymnast in Olympic history to earn seven tenths when she performed the feat in the 1972 Games. Or the USSR hockey team, which played the finest hockey in the world, bar none. Or the basketball teams of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, who placed first and second in the men's tournament in 1988, beating out the inventors of the game, the United States, and unwittingly changing the face of international basketball forever. But of all the individual athletes who won medals and tormented American sports fans, none was quite as singular as Vasily Alexiev, the dominant weightlifter of the 1970s, universal showstopper of both the 1972 and 76 Olympic Games. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. From the TV to a kid, he looked impossibly huge. The multicolored weights bending the bar rail bar, impossible to lift. His dark hair, of varying length and willingness through his career, had made comparisons to a bear cliched from early on. But the center of attention was his center of gravity, that orb sitting on the midsection from which his powers of super strength were based. Vasily Alexiev was a reason to watch international weightlifting, and when Alexiev smoothly cleared another insane amount of weight, damn if it wasn't the coolest sport in the world. We'll start running down Vasily Alexiev's incredible decade of victories of world records set shortly. First, an introduction of our guest. Mark Morthier is a decade's worth of experience in weightlifting and powerlifting competition each, including standing records in Masters Division competition in New Jersey and New York State. He's also worked as a weightlifting coach and has written two books, No Nonsense Old School Weight Training and the memoir Running Wild, Growing Up in the 1970s. Last but by no means least, He's the host of the Sports History Network podcast, Yesterday Sports. Weightlifter, podcaster, and 1970s enthusiast. Who else can I get to speak on this episode of Truly the Goats? <laughs> Mark Morthier, thanks for joining us on Truly the Goats. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, glad, glad to be with you. Uh, well, we're glad to have the resident weightlifting expert from the Sports History Network because we're going to talk some Vasily Alexiev momentarily, but as a fellow old guy, Mark, I wanted to ask you, how do you explain what living in the 70s and 80s, especially with the Cold War, was like? Well, it was a scary time with the constant threat of a nuclear war hanging over your head. So um, if you weren't part of that generation and you want to know just how serious it was, do a little research on the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. and uh, you'll get an idea of how serious it was. Uh, we were on the brink of nuclear annihilation. And then the 70s, uh, 1972, President Nixon and General Secretary uh, Leonid Brezhnev of the Communist Party 
of the Soviet Union. They signed uh, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. But uh, even after that, tensions were still high. And uh, uh, you mentioned in one of your emails to me that I forgot about, there were two movies made in 19, <laughs> both of them in 1983. One was called War Games and the other one was called, I believe, The Day After. And they were uh, fictitious movies about nuclear war. But when you look back on it, they weren't really as far-fetched as they seemed. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, in the 80s, you know, we had the 1980 and the 1984 Olympic boycotts. And both of those were a direct result of the Cold War. And then uh, finally, things started to get better with the help of President Reagan and Pope John Paul II. And the Cold War ended in 1991, and the Soviet Union was no more. So, uh, but uh, one thing I wanted to point out what often gets lost in all that is that the, as far as uh, athletics go and the Olympics, uh, the USA and the Soviet Union athletes actually had pretty good relationships with each other. And I've, I've heard a lot of stories from guys I lifted with about how the weightlifters would trade with each other. The Russian lifters always wanted jeans because they couldn't <laughs> really get, you know, the, you know, in the 1980s, they had the uh, fancy jeans, the Jordache and the, so the U.S. lifters would bring jeans with them to trade and they would get lifting shoes or lifting belts in exchange. Um, but when did you first hear of Vasily Alexiev and, and what were your impressions? What do you think? Well, Alexiev wasn't really famous or well-known even in, in his own country until around March of 1970 when he became the first man to total 600 kilos. And by total, I mean... When I say total, that's all three lifts combined. That would be the clean and, breath, clean and press, which they no longer have at that time. The clean and press, the snatch, the clean and jerk. And the uh, first time I saw him was later that year, a uh, wide world of sports televised the world championships, which was in Columbus, Ohio. And that was the competition when it became the first man in the world to clean and jerk 500 pounds. And I was only eight at the, I was eight years old at the time. So being so young, I didn't really know anything about weightlifting, but after seeing that lift, I became a fan of weightlifting. And I always made sure I watched Why World of Sports because other than the Olympics, that was really the only time you got to see weightlifting on television. The 1970s international sports kicked off with the international introduction to Vasily Alexiev, 28 years old and a minor by profession. In January 1970, at the World Weightlifting Championship in Columbus, Ohio, Alexiev set what would be the first of his 80 world records set in his career, uh, becoming also the first to clean and jerk 500 pounds slash 227 kilos. Better yet, for marketing purposes in America, the event was broadcast in the U.S. on Wide World of Sports. The early 70s proved to be very big years for Wide World, and part of that was due to the presence of a very big man. His name, Vasily Alexiev, and he was the super heavyweight lifter from a town called Shakti in the Soviet Union. 
Okay, you can see it. 235.5 kilos. This means that 518 pounds is what Alexiev is going to try to lift. This would give him a new world record, the record that he now holds, 517 pounds. You can hear the tension in this crowd. It was just last year in Columbus, Ohio, that 500 pounds was broken by the first, for the first time by this man, Vasily Alexiev. He's cleaned it. He's cleaned it. Later that year, Alexiev won handily over the competition at the European Weightlifting Championship in Sombate, Hungary, taking two first and a second in three events for a combined total 99 pounds slash 45 kilos higher than the second place finisher. Heavy loads don't worry this chap too much either. Known as the strongest man in the world, Russia's Vasily Alexeyev was appearing in a contest in Paris. Every one of his three lifts set a new world record. Alexeyev's fame grew like his midsection. Here, he's attempting to take on just over 488 pounds. Later that year, Alexeyev won handily over the competition at the European Weightlifting Championship in Sombate, Hungary. Now for the final jerk. Taking two first and a second in three events. Vasily's flexing himself for 506 pounds, the heaviest yet. For a combined total, 99 pounds slash 45 kilos higher than the second place finish. And he's done it. Some jerk. Later in 1971, he took all three events in the heavyweight division at the World Weightlifting Championships in Lima, Peru, beating the United States' Ken Patera, touted as the answer to the city, by 98 pounds slash 42 and a half kilos. And that's the broad shoulders that will lift it toward the sky. Alexeyev, a mining engineer by trade, but a weightlifter by every other standard. His whole life is given to this sport. But he's a funny man too, he's got a good sense of humor, he speaks English a little bit, a little bit of French, a bit of German. And he polished off a leg of lamb for dinner last night, which probably accounts for his 334 pounds. 1972 was, of course, the year of very eventful Olympics, and Vasily took care of business again, winning all three events in the heavyweight class by 66 pounds slash 30 kilos over second place. 534 and a half pounds really is an extraordinary total. He goes now into this routine of settling himself, thinking his way into that weight. Same went for the European Championships that fall. With the same combined total of 640 kilos, the same 30 kilo difference to second place. And as he lifts, look for the bar itself. Look how it moves. Up it goes. And it's up, he's got it, he must have it. Yes, he locks out. Alex has done it, 534 and a half pounds. A new world record, his 66. See the crowd absolutely jubilant. Getting a sense of deja vu yet? We'll get back to the Truly the Goats podcast in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. 
If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. made Alexiev so great? Was it his physique? Was it the technique? Was it something else? Well, his technique was excellent, and he was extremely fast and flexible for a man his size, but definitely not a good physique. He had an abnormally huge stomach. Mm -hmm. And the one bad thing about the promotion of Alexiev was that a lot of people who didn't know about weightlifting thought that weightlifters were just these huge powerful guys with big bellies, but people didn't realize there are different weight classes. And most of the weightlifters were fairly muscular, especially in the legs. But if I had to pinpoint one thing that separated Alexia from those he competed against, it was his extreme confidence in himself. Mm -hmm. He was was known to psych out his opponents in the warm-up room. Uh, I'll give you (laughs) one example. One example of that was he, he wouldn't start his warm-ups until all the other lifters were well into their warm-ups. And he would just sit there and put his feet up as if to say to his competitors, you guys can battle it out for second place because the gold medal is mine. I'm just here to break world records. Alexiev broke 80 world records or so, but he had a very interesting reason for doing that. Tell us about that. Well, yes, uh, there were, um, of course, they would deny it because the Soviet, you know, there was a lot of secretive information, <laughs> you know, the Soviets didn't care to share, but there were reports of Soviet athletes getting paid large sums of money every time they broke a world record. 
which, by the way, is a very capitalist idea. But <laughs> Alexiev, Alexiev had to, had a goal to break a hundred world records before he retired, and as you say, he came very close. Mm. He broke eighty world records, and he was smart enough to break these records as often as possible because he would break them in very tiny increments, like uh, half a kilo. Which, if uh, anybody who doesn't know, kilo uh, half a kilo is roughly 1.1 pounds. So he, he would break the records in small increments uh, because the more times he broke the record, the more he got paid. So I'm sure it's great, great for his reputation as well to just say, yes. okay, well, it's, yeah. I, I, need a, I need to fix my car, so I better break the record this week. <laughs> In the 1970s, it was more the same for Vasily. And now assistants prepare for Alexeyev's attempt to set a new world record. Setting records. The weight is a fantastic 534 and a half pounds. Variably dominating his class through 1974 into 1975. And Vasily Alexeyev of the USSR remains champion of the world with a new world record lift. An all-Russian victory. In 1975, the World Championship was held in Moscow. Great chance for Vasily to continue his winning streak in front of a home crowd. No, You'll never guess what happened at the 1976 Summer Olympic Games in Montreal. Suffice to say, there was another goal for Alexia. Soviet Union team took eight of the 27 possible medals in all classes, and together with the so-called Soviet bloc nations of Bulgaria, East Germany, Poland, and Hungary, accounted for 22 of the 27. Later in his career, uh, Alexiev was became at least he was portrayed as kind of a strange guy, kind, kind of becoming a recluse. He proudly proclaimed that he trained by himself at random times during the day. Didn't need a trainer. He thought trainers were useless, or at least he said so at, at one point. You're a trainer yourself. What does a weightlifting coach and trainer do? Well, a good coach uh, really uh, can point out errors in your technique more than anything else. Uh, and that's, that's especially important with less experienced lifters. But uh, even, even experienced lifters can fall into bad habits when training alone. Uh, but uh, Alexiev really didn't trust coaches and he didn't feel the need for a coach. Uh, there was an interview with him many years after he had retired. And I, I'm not going to quote word for word, but uh, pretty much what he said is, I knew more than the coaches did, and I broke 80 world records without a coach. I trained at home a lot. My wife, uh, who coincidentally, her name was Olympia, 
She said, my wife was my coach. She fed me nutritious meals. She tended to my injuries. And since she lived with me, she could, she could see the signs of when I was overtraining. Mm. But uh, back wow. to your uh, original questions. The other thing that a coach can do is, is uh, he can uh, really watch for when a lifter is overtraining because weightlifters can get very stubborn and they'll let, never admit to themselves when they need to back off a little. So they need a coach to advise them when it's time to ease up and when it's time to pick up the intensity. And uh, at compet- I, I know from my own experience that um, after, after a few years of you know, having a coach, I got the idea of the technique. So I didn't really need a coach so much in training, but in competition, I always wanted to have my coach with me because I, I tended to have a lot of nervous energy and that would cause me to get over anxious and do more warm-ups than I needed to. So my coach would help me to stay calm and guide me through my warm-ups and do just the right amount without wearing myself out. As Alexei have continued winning in all parts of the globe, so did the myths surrounding the man, continuously portrayed in English language media as a patriot who loved his country but enjoyed the individual freedoms of any athlete. In a famous 1975 cover story for Sports Illustrated, the uncredited writer devotes over one quarter of his article's first few thousand words to Alexeyev's home in Shakti, all the while with comparison to the average Soviet citizen's lifestyle, like Two brick outbuildings are attached to the house proper. One is a garage, but it is used for storage. Alexiev's four-door Volga sedan that cost about $10,000 is parked in the courtyard. It has plush maroon upholstery and a stereo tape deck. Next to the garage is his professional billiard building, generous living space for three or four people by Soviet standards. The floor is parquet. Walls are paneled in white pine with ornamentally carved strips and darkened grain. Ceiling is made of interlocking wooden squares with indirect lighting and quiet fans, and so on. In a New York Newsday piece of November 29, 1977, sports writer Bill Mack described Alexeyev on a visit to the big city. Wrapped inside a sky blue trench coat and a flaming orange shirt, he was all the more visible in Midtown yesterday. He was standing now at the counter of Barbizon Imports, an electronics store on 50th Street on 7th Avenue, standing and alternatively nodding, shaking his head, muttering in Russian over his dilemma, which was this. He could not decide between the pink-buttoned, plastic-rich, cream-colored Pro hairdryer with 1,300 watts, but with no pressure comb, and the bright blue zoom-and-groom power dryer with 700 watts and an array of brushes, combs, and attachments. Later that year, Alexeyev was slated to compete in Las Vegas, but suffered an injury, which, in hindsight, we have marked the beginning of the end. Earlier in the week, there was no indication that Alexeyev was injured, as he seemed to be thoroughly enjoying his first trip to Las Vegas. Alexeyev, a massive, impressive man, was seen enjoying himself at a dollar slot machine in one casino. Clank, whirr, clatter, outspilled $20. Alexeyev scooped them up. His risk venture had paid off and they tried to tell him capitalism would never work. Lexiev, unofficially the world's strongest man, lost his impassiveness momentarily and smiled. The Soviet citizen does not recoil at the sight of capitalist currency. Thus arrayed, Alexeyev left the Aladdin with his $20 to go shopping with two other members of the Soviet party. 
an interpreter, a press agent, and a reporter. They proceeded by cab to a shopping mall where the first order of business was to get Alexiev some photograph records. Tchaikovsky? No. Borden? No. Shostakovich? No. Elvis, said Alexiev. Nor did he mean just a sample of Elvis. He picked out perhaps a dozen albums. At least half were by President. Elvis, he said. Da. Well, it's one for the money, two for the sh- Elvis was a hero to most, but he- in the 1980 Moscow Olympics, it was clear that Alexiev was done competitively. He managed to clear not one of three attempts in the snatch, and he retired from the sport thereafter. Despite the fact that he'd been injured on and off for the previous two years, and that he hadn't lifted competitively in that time, Alexiev had an interesting explanation for his failure in 1980. I was very well prepared. And I wouldn't have performed in Moscow if I had had any doubts on that score. Six attempts before going out onto the platform, our national team coach Alexander Rykov poured me a glass of liquid to improve my condition. Then I realized it was poison. In other words, it happened 10 or 12 minutes before I was to go out on the platform. I think the reason is simple. They were bribed. They were handed a certain sum of money to ensure that my gold medal went to someone else. I think that Rashidov, the Uzbekistan party chief, was involved in it. The one who swindled the state of 4 billion rubles. Yes, it's really hard for me to talk about it, because it was at that point that my sporting career came to an abrupt end, although I could have gone on performing for another three years or so. But Alexiev wasn't quite out of the game just yet. Twelve years after the Moscow Games, with his former nation of the Soviet Union dissolving like the Cold War itself into history, Alexiev returned to the Olympics in Barcelona as coach of the unified team of 12 Soviet republics. What can you tell us about this part of his career? Well, he became the, he didn't really coach for that long. Uh, he started coaching in 1990. Uh, he was named the national coach. And the, uh, they always had a national coach. So in 1990, he was named the national coach. Uh, and he coached for, he coached for roughly, uh, three years and uh in 1992 olympics he coached the team to 10 medals and five of them are gold medals so he definitely had success as a coach but then uh you know after that the the soviet union fell apart Mm -hmm. and everybody just you know the lifters just uh scattered to other countries and so that was pretty much the end of his coaching career. But he did uh, coach for three years and uh, had quite a lot of success. But Alexiev may have let nostalgia for the past get in the way of his obvious coaching expertise. In a much reprinted story written by Philip Bondi of the New York Times, the man who had taken over the title of World's Strongest Man called out his results getting coach. The World's Strongest Man Alexander Kurovich had opinions Tuesday night to match his biceps. 
minutes after receiving his Olympic gold medal for lifting a total of 992 pounds in the snatch, 452 pounds, and jerk, 540 pounds, super heavyweight Kurovich called the legendary Vasily Alexievich a dictator, charging that the head of the unified team weightlifting federation had excluded top athletes on no dumbbell. Kurovich waited until he was through with the United team forever before leveling his public attack. I will be very happy to part ways and return to my republic, said Kurovich, a Belarusian who will compete in future competitions under that republic's flag. There is an incompatibility in character. There are people who act like dictators, and that is the simplest way to characterize Alexia. He attempted not to include me here, but I was supported by people above him. In eulogizing the great athlete, one can see how inextricably linked Alexiev was with his culture and his time, and of the admiration he nevertheless still evoked. The passing away on November 25th of Vasily Alexiev, a legendary figure in competitive weightlifting, marks yet another poignant closure for the former Soviet Union. Alexiev, who reportedly died of heart failure at the age of 69 in a Munich clinic, epitomized the achievements as well as the failures rigid system designed to crank out champions and to mercilessly weed out those deemed unfit to pass the grade. Growing up in communist Bulgaria, I often saw Alexia on our grainy black and white TV screen, setting yet another world or Olympic record. The Soviet propaganda machine relentlessly promoted Alexia as superior to his Western counterparts, and in his particular case, the description wasn't far from the truth. In his heyday, 1970-1977, Alexiev was matched by no one. Nikola Kroslev, Radio for Europe, November 27, 2011. In your estimation, what, if anything, do or can young weightlifters take from the story of Vasily Alexiev? I think the first thing is they can learn, they can learn history about their... It's always good for uh, young athletes, no matter what sport, I think. A lot of... Uh, football players and baseball players. It's a good idea to learn about their predecessors and they can uh, know how different the world was at that time and how a lot of these athletes had to overcome tremendous obstacles to reach their goals. Uh, it wasn't quite, uh, you weren't quite pampered as much back then in the, you know, the 60s, the 70s. Um, a lot of these guys had to overcome tremendous obstacles. And they can also learn that many of the training methods that were used years ago are still still in use today. So mm -hmm. there's that old saying, you know, that old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the, I think the, the other important thing uh, to, they could learn is that uh, Alexia was a great example of don't judge a book by its cover because if you looked at him, you know, he appeared to be out of shape and, you know, you'd never think this guy could lift five on. Look at this guy. There's no way he, he can't even bend down. But uh, that goes to show you can't judge a book by its cover because he was extremely athletic for, for a man his size. Just one more for you, a little bit of speculation. This, with some of these individual sports at the Olympics, it feels like we're getting closer and closer and closer to human limits, you know, with, with guys like Usain Bolt. Um, how much more can people lift? 
I mean, will weightlifting well, ever, will it ever top up? Will we ever reach a peak of human strength? Well, that's a good question because um, Alexia did that 500 clean and jerk in 1970. So we're talking 51 years ago. And it actually has not, uh, you know, by in 51 years, you would have thought by now that someone would have reached 600. And no one has really come close. But uh, now you'll want to watch these Olympics if you're into weightlifting, because there is a super heavyweight from Georgia, which was part, part of Russia. Uh, his first name is Lasha, and I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. But his first name is Lasha. He's a super heavyweight. And he may very well become the first man to clean. I think he's done about 592 pounds in training. So he may very well become the first man to clean and jerk 600 pounds. Wow. And uh, not only that, but uh, he may become the first man to snatch 500 pounds. Wow. I think he's done. So, you know, you look back at Alexia doing a clean and jerk of 500 pounds. Now we have a guy approaching doing that in a snatch, which is, mm -hmm. if you don't know, you know, for those who don't know, a snatch is simply lifting the bar from the floor to overhead in one motion yep. instead of two motions. So this, this guy, Lasha, uh, might be the one to do. And Surely no one who grew up in the much smaller world of the cold can honestly whack nostalgic for the geopolitics of those times. From the paranoia in America to the concerns in Western Europe that superpowers have made their countries into a theater of nuclear war, to the repression of national identity in Soviet republics, to restriction of rights and the occasional military incursion nearly everywhere on the block, nothing good truly came from this time great ignorance. The Cold War era will ultimately be seen as a period of stunted growth in human culture. It will surely someday be used as an exemplar of the destructive power of xenophobia upon societies. And in the end, if the only aspect of Cold War history that remains translatable to those born after the fall of the Berlin Wall is the special athletic awesomeness of an all-time great like Vasily Alexiev, Well, that's just fine. This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode, Mark Morthier, of Yesterday's Sports Podcast. His book, No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and Running Wild Growing Up in the 1970s are available at Amazon.com The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street greatest remix of all time and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes Cold War Echo by Kai Engel and 
Impudence by Vadim Lankov. Both tracks are available by Fair Use Agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying, Everybody can change! And always, keep always, perspective, 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 Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.